Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by puppeteer and actor Brian Herring. You will have seen Brian's work and the iconic TV satire spitting image, the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics, and most recent trilogy of the Star Wars films as the lovable new droid BB-8. Hello, Brian. Hello, how are you? Very good. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Nice to be here. We're recording this remotely because of the Corona times, but you're someone who, I guess your line of work, you know, on set filmmaking, television making must have been really affected by by the current situation well yes i mean obviously everybody got you know everybody got locked down and the first big production that went back was jurassic world the third one of those and that went back in around about the july of 2020 so that was fair and it was quite a while ago the first thing i got involved in the game was the the new version of spitting image which was then we, we, we started that in the August. It got pushed about three weeks because of the pandemic. And so we've been very lucky. The big films have gone back. I know commercials have been filming again um, and television's back with, you know, with lots of social distancing and a, and a very large testing regime in place. But um, the poor guys in theatre, they, they, they can't get back at all at the moment. It's, it's, it's a great shame. I mean, I've done, I've done some theatre work, but I've, I feel for them. You know, it's very, very difficult for them. But the, the, the film industry got back on its feet pretty quickly. I was pleased you mentioned Jurassic World going back. Uh, our former, one of our former podcasts, Colin Trevorrow, um, is directing. So it's nice to see him go back to work. He joined us. His first film was Under 90 Minutes, Safety yeah, Not Guaranteed. Right, yeah, it's great. I really <laughs> like that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Have you pivoted to other lines of work? I, I know you've got quite a nice uh, sort of home office voiceover setup now. <laughs> I yeah, well, I've always sort of dabbled around in animation and um, video game work, so um, we did kind of push that a little bit more during the pandemic. And there were a few video games I recorded throughout that. One of which is out on the PlayStation Five, available now. If you, <laughs> if you can get a PlayStation Five, it's called Destruction All Stars, and I uh, I voice a character on there called Box Top. So if you um, if you run box top over with your with your spiked vehicle, you can hear me screaming. So that's uh, that's something something to look forward to, I suppose. I love video games, but I always imagine for the, you know, the performers uh, working in video games, you have to record all of these different things for whatever the player does. Yeah, lots of grunts and groans and owls and jumps and exertions. I can't remember there is a, there is a, there is a term for it. I think it might be exertions. So there's a whole um, a whole raft of oh ah, uh, uh, and it's, it's exhausting as well which is quite funny okay well I, I need to check that game out and and i hope you don't mind but i would like to run you over very good yes well done. <laughs> of course your your first line of work and your main line of work is is puppeteering um yes. which yeah your cv is incredible um you know right from spitting image up through the 90s and, and the noughties you've worked with some incredible directors how did you how did you get into it i lied at an audition for spitting image in 1992 <laughs> i um i met a guy my parents were in a pub a guy who drank in the pub worked at spitting image and said, oh, they're doing a workshop. Would you like to come along to that? And I went, yeah, right. And I bowled up there and my name was written on the bottom of, of a list and it turned out it wasn't a workshop. I thought it was like a training workshop. It was an audition. And I jumped the first round and he just put his mate in. And I, and I walked in there and they were, they were auditioning for assistant puppeteers. 
and I got the job. And five, six weeks later, I was on television. And I'd, ne- I'd never picked up it. I told them that I'd worked on a production of Little Shop of Horrors. I told him I worked on a tour of Little Shop of Horrors, which was kind of true because it had come through our local theatre and I'd moved the scenery. And um, I sort of watched the bloke doing the part and thought, well, I know how that works. And then they took me on and they trained me. I mean, I was trained up by um, like people who had done Rainbow and Pipkins and all those kind of classic children's televisions shows from the 70s and early 80s. And they just took me on and they trained me up to, as, as you know, showed me how to do arms and eyes and then um, just kind of started getting work on under my own, you know, off my own back, really. And then, yeah, that was it. That, that was kind of how I fell into it. I was acting up until that point. And I never really went back to acting because I found that I could um, exercise most of my acting muscles, but from the elbow up. You know, you were using voice, you know, you were, you were doing comedy, you were doing timing, you were doing a certain amount of physicality. Uh, you had to hit your marks and not bump into the furniture. And if you could do the voice, and sometimes if like with spitting image, if the voice was pre-recorded, you wouldn't even need to look. It, it didn't come down to how you looked, which is the, uh, the problem I always have with acting, really, because I think you, you have to be a certain type to, to get certain roles. But I could play anything, and um, that was that was you know a lot of the appeal. So yeah, so that's I just kept doing it. Do you uh, yeah? You because know, you've done lots of telly work off the back of spitting image. When did films come along? Was that was quite close afterwards. It started happening at the same time, really. I, I was doing sort of spinning image through the early 90s. And off the back of that, I wound up at an audition, I think probably in 93. The Jim Henson Company used to be based in Camden. And they had their creature shop in Camden. And um, they did a large open call for what turned out to be Muppets Treasure Island. So they saw loads and loads of people for that. And they, they think they, they were taking on six people full time for the movie. But also if you kind of went, and you, you know, you got into the last 30, then you were going to be working on that movie because they had the world and his brother on that film. Because when, you know, when they're all on the ship or they've got, you know, dozens and dozens of puppets, they need people underneath that know, you know, know what they're doing up to a point. So um, whenever the Muppets come to town, be it like Christmas Carol or Treasure Island or Muppets Most Wanted, then people invariably get they put out these big calls and people just rock up for a couple of days and there's loads of puppeteers in one place which is you know insane and deafening and um <laughs> so yeah I, I started the Muppet Treasure Island was my first film and I was doing television through that as well and Jim Henson Company did a version of Jack and the Beanstalk uh, with Matthew Modine in it but then I did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, which was my kind of my first big science fiction thing I think the next one I did after that was probably Hellboy 2, which was a huge amount of fun. And that came just because by that point, I'd also strayed out and on Hitchhikers. I did some, um, I did some of the, the sort of smaller Vogon creature suits. Um, you know, I, I, I sidled up to Peter Elliott, who was the, um, the movement uh, coordinator on that. Peter's um, great uh, ape performer. He, uh, performs as you know silverback gorillas and that sort of thing and has been doing it for a thousand years he did greystoke and a load of things like that and uh, i said oh you don't frighten me peter i'll go into one of your suits and the next <laughs> thing i know I, find, I found myself lashed into a vogon and uh you kind of got on with it really and i liked it i like kind of messing around and that kind of stuff so off the back of that i met a bunch of the mechanics who build this stuff the, the amazing fabricators the great unsung heroes of this work um the guys who make all this this crazy stuff and off the back of that, I got invited to go and have a part in Hellboy 2, which was over in Budapest. 
uh, with Guillermo del Toro, and that was just that was an amazing experience. You're quite a distinctive character in Hellboy 2, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I'm a fish vendor. It's um, it's kind of this this squid. It's got all these tentacles, these mechanical tentacles. It was a practical effect as well, which was lovely. And um, so I was in this head, and I had these big long tentacles. And there was about four guys puppeteering the head. Guillermo del Toro just found it hilarious that my last name was Herring and this thing was cutting the heads off fish. And he's a big fan of the set. He loves a cephalopod. So he, um, he decided he did the voice for that. And, uh, we, yeah, it was good fun. It was nice. It was about three weeks. It was just a three week job, but it was, um, he kept kind of moving the camera around. So the thing would be featured, which was nice. You don't often get that a lot of the time with some of these creatures in the bigger shows, especially stuff like star Wars is a lot of them, or moving wallpaper. You know, there's amazing things that these guys build and they just sort of hang out in the shadows and never get a really clear shot. But that's half of the stuff that makes Star Wars great, I think, is just the uh, the world building. Yeah, people want to see a lived-in universe. Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily mean that everything gets a, a big beauty shot. But it's, it's, it's those characters in the shadows that, that kind of um, tend to inspire people's fan fictions or, you know, it just sparks the imagination as to what that shady creature in the corner is doing, you know. Uh, that's very cool. Yeah, I um, I, I, lo- I really like Guillermo's uh, Hellboy, Hellboy films. Mm. So I was, I was pleased to see that that you were the Squid Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, <laughs> yeah, he's a very, very nice man as well. It's good fun. He's good fun because and also he's, he's he's like any director that's kind of come from a different department. You know, they're like getting their hands dirty. We'll get involved with a paintbrush, like Ridley Scott. You know, he'll just get in there all of a sudden and start, you know, roughing stuff up and just distressing things or flicking a paintbrush around. And it's, you know, you just, just they go back to where they started. And it's quite fun to watch that. Most recently you mentioned at the top, you know, people will know you because you're such a memorable character in Star Wars, BB-8. Yeah, I mean, he BB-8 is kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a fun thing because he, he's a big team effort. There's, there's, there's a couple of us that do it. And he's every tool in the box as well. So he's he's a, he's an old school rod puppet. There's animatronics. There's versions with wheels on the back. There's digital, you know, complete digital renderings of him. There's say there's, a, there's an old school rod puppet that I push around, and um, myself and a puppeteer called Dave Chapman we operate that. And um, then I'm removed from it digitally later. So I'll be in every you know every scene with that particular version, and then Industrial Light and Magic will come in and just clean me out of it. So if you you know you see BB-8 running through the desert, there's a sweaty man in a green suit four four feet behind him, just <laughs> trying not to fall over in really really hot soft sand, and that's you know, that's half the fun of it really because you you know you, you it's that thing where you I I can tell which version is which, but hopefully you'll just watch it and go it's BB-8 and you won't know if it's digital if it's you know a trike driven version or if it's you know me with a puppet so that's that's the fun of that. So you know, you spend a lot of your time making films, of course, um, and and you like, say worth checking out Brian's uh, IMDb, folks, because like Brian's been in a lot of your favourite films <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, behind various bits of makeup or as various body parts. <laughs> body parts, yes. Um, but uh, but do you when you're when you're not working, you know, do you like to uh, watch films to unwind? Is, is that a pastime of yours? Yeah, I do. I do watch. I watch a lot of movies, and you know, I'm a bit of a box set box set hound as well. You know, so you sort of well, I don't mind a bit. I don't mind a binge watch. Um, so yeah, I've just. I think the last new thing I saw because there's obviously there's not been a lot of new things to do, but I just I, I just waded through uh, Godzilla versus Kong. You know, it's uh, wasn't King Lear, but it kept me amused for a, for an hour, a couple of hours. You know, yeah, no, that was uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, sometimes you just need to see a big lizard punching a big monkey. Absolutely, a big monkey <laughs> with an axe for yeah. some reason. I couldn't can quite, charge up. I couldn't quite ascertain why it had an axe, but you know what? It's a monkey with an axe. Let's do it. It's an ape with an axe. Sorry. 
when you when you're you know looking through your box sets and looking for things to watch, do you ever look at the back of the back of the DVD and see how long something is? Does the runtime come into never. your decision? <laughs> I, I say I, I say never. Um, yeah, we, we we kind of we we did tend to we stopped watching movies a while ago just because I think it was easier to do two episodes of a TV show. Although then you suddenly find yourself you've watched four episodes of a TV show and you think, well, I could have watched a film in this time, you know. Yeah, I, I really. I do really consider the, the runtime. I mean, if you if you're going to pick up one of the Lord of the Rings movies, you know you're there for a while, um, or you know if you if if you're going to sit down and watch Avatar, you know you've got to write off a big lump of the afternoon. But I don't. It's nothing that ever really occurred to me until I until I was invited on a podcast. When I invited you on the podcast, when I gave you the homework, how did you how did you tackle that that task? Uh, well, I I went and looked at some of the other people who've been on before me and a couple of the good ones had gone. Uh, so there was a couple of films that I would have, would have picked. And then we had a very brief check. There's a couple of ones. Went, oh, I like that one. And you said someone's done that already. So um, I then sort of started poking around and, uh, and also you wouldn't let me do the last 90 minutes of aliens. So um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so I, I wanted to do son of Rambo actually, which is one of my all time favorite movies but it's one hour and 36 minutes long. So that's, you know, but I'm like, there's six minutes of credits. And you said, it doesn't count. I then sort of suddenly thought, well, a lot of the time, children's films, and I've seen there's been quite a lot of people doing children's films on these. Mm. And again, 80s movies were quite short. So I kind of went back to the 80s and, and sort of started looking through things that I'd really enjoyed, which is how I, I settled on this. Um, I did notice over the weekend, though, that the Galen Heard 1980-whatever-it-was cop-buddy alien movie, Alien Nation, was only 90 minutes. I thought I could have done that because it's really, really daft. But I decided to go with my first choice. Uh, and what did you choose for us today, Brian? Uh, the Don Bluth uh, 1982 animated classic, The Secret of Nim. Get ready to meet some runaway rodents with an earth-shattering secret. Suspenseful and heartwarming, this beautifully animated odyssey stars Mrs. Brisby, a mild-mannered mother mouse with a plan to move heaven and earth, or at least her house, to save her family from Farmer Fitzgibbon's plow. That's a pretty top-level synopsis there. Yeah, I mean, and it also sounds like, you know, good, light-hearted family fun, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, we were just talking about the uh, the DVD listeners, which uh, we'll put a picture on our Twitter feed, but uh, it looks like a lovely, warm family movie. There's a family it, it of mice really and a friendly crow just having a nice time in a field. It's daylight, which I yeah. don't think you see at all in the film. I think, I think it's daylight <laughs> only a couple of times. This film is brutal. It's absolutely brutal. I mean, I hadn't seen it in some years. And, you know, I was very, very fond of it. I, I had great memories of it. And I went back and watched it. I watched it through a couple of times. And it's the kind of film they won't make for children now. And yet it's the kind of, with the kind of action in it that kids are watching Marvel movies for. <laughs> It's you know, true, it, yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, there are obvious reasons, which I'm sure we'll discuss, it, it is so old school Disney. You know, it's Bambi's mum getting shot in the first 10 minutes. Hardcore, this film. Uh, yeah, the tone the tone really struck me. And you're right, I think there's a lot of um, sort of history uh, around that. Um, but uh, just for, for listeners who maybe haven't seen the film yet, do pause the podcast. This will be a spoilery chat. We'll talk about all of the ins and outs of the, of the movie. It's only like 85 minutes long or so. It's easy to fit it in. So come back, come back after you've seen the movie. 
as you mentioned, it's directed by Don Bluth, who has a really long history as an animator. He is former Disney. And I think you yeah. see the sort of Disney uh, style in there. Absolutely. I mean, this was his first, um, this was his first film. They, a whole bunch of them left Disney because they kind of didn't feel it was being run the way that Walt Disney would have liked it to have been run. And I think one of his last movies he worked on was, I think it was The Rescuers. I'm not absolutely steeped in sort of the, the history of all this. But if you if you saw The Rescuers and then saw this, you'd go, oh, yeah, same guy. And it looked very, it looked very, very much like um, like The Rescuers in, in sort of style. And what, what struck me again recently watching it again is that, they weren't afraid to just, as the old Disney's weren't, just hold on a still frame of a painting of a field with a little brick in it, which is where this, this is the house for this mouse. And it just slowly pushes in gently with the music. I mean, Jerry Goldsmith has done the, done the soundtrack for it, and he just just adds class to anything he has anything to do with. And the, the soundtrack for this is beautiful as well. And it's, a, it's, a, it's that great that great old school animation where here is a picture. Look at this. Okay. You got that. Good. Now we'll move on. Whereas a lot of the stuff now, I just find I'm getting old. It's all too, it's all too <laughs> fly about it and flappy, you know, it, nothing, it, it, this, this film just, it does take its time. But yet it zips along as well. It's that weird, like just the magic of the storytelling in this. Cause I, I watched it a couple of times before we spoke as well. And I, both times I was like, is this the end already? I thought that both times, even when mm. I knew exactly when the end was happening. Yeah, and a lot and a lot happens in it as well. There is, I mean, I think the thing that, that stayed with me, I saw it when I was about 12 and I probably, obviously was at the top end of the intended market for it. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd already seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, but this, this, this for some reason, this, this, there's bits of this film that are so dark it kind of it really it does terrify me, but you know it's. I wouldn't imagine if you stuck a six year old in front of this now, it would absolutely terrify them. And it's things that you don't normally see in animation, like you. Like Disney sort of always did a good job of having a scary villain, but this isn't yes. just a scary villain. This is sort of like a scary universe that our very you know sweet main character is is plunged into. It very much. It very much reminded me of. It's nowhere near as bleak, but it very much reminded me of Watership Down in the fact that they live in, all these animals live in a world where potentially something could kill them at any second. And there's some lovely bits where, I mean, at one point they go very early on in the film. Um, and it's, I think it's important as well to, to point out that the hero of this film is a widowed single mother of four. You know, and and she was, and she's a, you know, she's an action hero mother who fights for her kids, really early on in this, and it, and um, she winds up going off. One of her, the, the plot being one of her children is ill, and um, she has to go and go all off to see this mouse who is like a little scientist who lives in this big machine, which they never quite explain what the machine is and what he's doing down there, but in his lab, in his laboratory, he's got uh, there's a ladybird on a table. And this ladybird is the size of a cocker spaniel to him. And he picks it up and puts it on the floor and there's moths and stuff and they're big, you know. And so the scaling in it is, 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 is really, really fun. 
so is there there is there is danger around every corner in this and it's uh, it's it's great for that yes the harsh realities i guess of of being in the food chain because there's a lot of circle of life sort of stuff with a, a scary monster coming and then a bigger thing coming and stepping on it <laughs> yeah yes completely i mean that for me is i mean there's there's a couple of very large threats in this film and i mean there's there's a cat there's a catnip called dragon who is the 1982 animated equivalent of the Tyrannosaur in Jurassic Park because you never quite knew when this thing was going to show up and it was going to kill them. It wasn't going to kind of bat them about a bit and leave them, for, you know, it's, it, it, it was genuinely scary because if it got them, it would eat them. And they established that very, very early on that it will do proper harm. And, um, and, and, and for, I, I, I think it's great. I really do. Move to a place where it'll be safe from the plow. Please, there must be another way. There is no other way. I must bid you good evening, Mrs. Mrs. Brisby. Brisby? Mrs. Jonathan Brisby? Why, yes. He was my husband. But how do you know about him? That is not important. I will say this. His name is not unknown in these woods. Please, sir. I'll do anything to save Timmy. Anything. This came in in 1982. Disney animation was definitely going off the boil by that point. And yep. this must have been such a different and interesting alternative you know to maybe the generation before who had grown up on disney films and were now looking for what to take their kids to go and see well yeah i mean as you say it was an alternative it's actually i think it was more the kind of thing they had been producing you know it, it had that dark edge not quite as dark i mean i, I can't remember the dark crystal not dark crystal um the, the black cauldron i think that was 85 oh, yeah. wasn't it yeah but it was i think they had definitely didn't definitely turn, sort of turned left or divert diverted from the, the the path they had been going and then say bluth came along and did did this and he and then later on i think he did american tale didn't he and um the land before time was another big big hit of his but i don't think secret of him did that well when it came out and I think it really found its audience on video. I remember I went to see it. My grandfather took me to see it and I saw it in, um, in Surrey in a big old ABC. And I can still remember the, you know, the, the old theater. And I'd, I'd really liked it. I mean, one of the things I liked doing as a child was going to the pictures, you know, so that was something. And I just remember this being, you know, I'd be very fond of my granddad as well. So I think that that, that also is why this is, this film has stayed with me because I would go and stay with him. And this was one of the things we would do every time we'd go to the movies. And, and this was this particular year, that's what, I, what we saw. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the appeal was at the time. So it didn't do particularly well when it came out, but it, it has remained with me. And if you ever mention it to people, they go, oh, I remember seeing that, it scared the life out of me. Interestingly, I'd, I'd, we'd had the book read to us when I was at infant school. And it was called Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I believe they had to change the title so they didn't get sued by the Frisbee company. And... Having watched it again for this, there's an entire plot line in it that wasn't in the book. Uh, for anybody that hasn't seen this film, it's the rats of Nim have escaped from the National Institute of Mental Health, where they have, in quite graphic detail, been injected with something that has made them all intelligent, and they escape plague dog style, if you ever yeah. saw that one, <laughs> from the lab. All the mice but two 
die in the air shafts. Seriously, children, take your kids to this one. <laughs> They'll get blown away down the air shafts and two little mice open up the grate and the rats all escape and they can read and they can write and they steal electricity from the farmer and they're living under this rose bush in his garden. And um, they've got an entire civilization. And they also have politics and a Senate and there's a murder plot. And a, it's a, I mean, this thing is dense beyond belief. It's really good. But within this, the leader of the rats seems to be a wizard. He seems to be magic. He's magic and this is a magic amulet and they never explain any of it. And it's not, it wasn't in the book. None of that was in the book and they added it for the film. And um, I'm, I'm looking at it now going, if you serve that up now, they just say, I don't know. We're not, we need that explained to us. That has to happen. You know, we have to have the whole backstory of the amulet. How did he get magical powers? You know, they, would, they wouldn't wear it. And, you know, the audience wouldn't wear it now. But actually, none of it matters because it's just quite good fun. You know? <laughs> it is. When you when you sort of go through the plot like that, it's kind of amazing what they achieve, like A, in a family film, and B, in 82 minutes. Um, you know, like it's, it's really efficient storytelling that covers really broad ground. But it feels, even though it's, you know, it's surreal and it's like this like microcosm of a society, it does feel like a society. It feels lived in. There's hierarchies. Yes, there is. And there's, you know, there's nosy neighbours and there's, um, you know, sort of crazy old men that you don't really want to go too near if you, unless you have to. And there's those rats doing whatever they're doing under that bush and know everybody keeps away from because they know they're wrong ones. And actually they're not. They're just really intelligent and they're trying to move out from under the bush to go and live somewhere else. And... Um, just so they can have their own society. That's great. I, like, I really like it. And the voice talent in it is really good as well. And, um, you know, it's just some interesting, there's some interesting people involved in it because um, it's, it's like Derek Jacobi's in it. And, it's, and again, it, it comes from a period where they didn't used to cast names in the voices. I think the, probably the most recognisable name in it is Dom DeLuise, doing Dom DeLuise as the, as the comedy crow. But everybody else in it, is I mean, it's got um, Hermione uh, Baddeley's in it, who was in, um, she always used to play kind of drunk old lady. She was in uh, Mary Poppins and um, she was in Maud, cousin Elspeth in uh, Bewitched, the old TV series. And she was also somebody called Frontier Fanny in the 1960s Batman show. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she, 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 she was a very, very broad character actress. And she turns up as Auntie Shrew. And she's very much, oh, no, you can't possibly do it like that. And again, really early on, this plow turns up. And it's, it's this kind of beautifully rotoscoped sequence with this giant tractor which has clearly got a real guy on it that they've, they've rotoscoped out. It, it reminded me very much of the Ralph Bakshi uh, Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, so this little shrew and this mother take out this tractor. You know, they, they, just, they, they take it on like some kind of attack in The Empire Strikes Back. You know, they just <laughs> get stuck into it. And it's, 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 it's the first action sequence in the film. And um, and again, it's got it's got real danger going on, and and I just trying to think who else was was in it. So Derek Jacobi was in it as well, and and hilariously, the two of the kids are played by Shannon Doherty from Nine Hundred Two One Zero, and Will Wheaton, yeah. which was just, I just found fascinating that you know they've obviously been around that long. I think it's uh, it's always a challenge with um, you know especially child parts in. In, in films and in animation they often cheat it with having adults do children's voices but i really like in this they cast child actors for the children yeah yeah and they, they say that there's, there was a real sense there's a real sense of family 
with those kids and that mother. And there's definitely love there. And so when she does do what for me is the bravest thing in the movie, which is goes off to see this owl in this, in this terrifying woods, <laughs> um, the crow flies her in and they go in to see the great owl. The owl, she goes into the, the hollow tree and there's just bones everywhere. It's bones and cobwebs and as she's walking along. If you look, again, it's part the, the, the brilliance of the way they used to do animate these things. If you look in the background of the, the, the tree towards the top of the screen, you can see the owl in, in one of the shots. They've just painted him in. And then she, there is a spider that comes down. And this spider, you know, if it was, if it was you or I, this spider would be the size of an Alsatian in comparison. And um, this spider comes down. And as it's crawling up behind us, suddenly this massive foot comes out of nowhere and just crushes this spider. And that's the owl. And you realise, hey, A, it's very big. And B, it's going to eat her. And she starts talking to it, and the, the the result of which is sort of you know it's a, I find I found it a really fascinating and really again really tense scene mm. of just a mouse talking to an owl. You know, it's really well, well acted, isn't it? You yes, know, even it is. Obviously, they, they probably weren't even in the same room at the same time, and there's all yeah, of the animators it, to bring them alive. But as a scene, it's it's really tense and exciting. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very. Yeah, I, I can't I can't stress enough how much how how much danger there is in this movie for what it is and when it was made it's great there's lots of nice details in that like john carradine voices the uh, the owl character yes and um yeah. apparently he arrived at the the audition with a limp because he, he suffered from arthritis so the animators oh, works really? that into the character which is why he sort of limps off before he flies away oh fantastic, fantastic. it's those little stories which make it yeah. feel like it's alive you know yep. like they're responding to things the actors are bringing into the to the show uh, by doing that and I think that's, I don't know, like Disney did lots of that sort of stuff as well for reference, but the way they're doing it in this film, this Don Bluth production, it just feels a little bit more like gritty and realistic. Yeah, well, I th I, I, again, I don't know. I mean, a friend of mine, one of the puppeteers that we work with quite regularly, a guy called Damien, he he studied under Don Bluth in Ireland because Don came over, Don Bluth came over and, and set up an animation school and Damien attended there. So he studied under Don Bluth, so he, he would be... Um, he would be much more of an expert on this than than I am, but I. But it felt like they'd been let off the lead a little bit because it was their first production, and they went, "We want to do this," and so they 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 were doing the way that Disney would have done it with claws. So that's sort of how I, I felt that they kind of that, that's what their style was for this. I'm Helen O'Hara, film journalist, author, and host of Women vs. Hollywood, a new podcast from the Strict Media family. We're exploring the fall and rise of women in Hollywood from the silent era to the present day and into the future. Each episode, I'm joined by three or more special guests to discuss the challenges that women face in the film industry and look at what we can do to change the picture. We've got actors, directors, producers, writers, academics, film experts, you name it. They're all here to explain what's going on in Hollywood. Search for Women vs. Hollywood now, wherever you're listening to this, and come join us. For me, something that really stood out, and this is, like, I guess, being a bit of a nerd, but like, I, I do love it when you can kind of like spot how films are made. And there's lots of, you mentioned earlier with the tractor, lots of rotoscope scenes where they would have photographed something and they've sort of drawn over it in the animation. And it's like little things that I guess you can't cheat or you can't, 
sort of do artificially, like um, when uh, Mrs. Brisby's taking a basket down to see the Doctor Mouse, and it's all it's like very wobbly, you know, like it's got this natural sort of wobble to it. And on the the Blu-ray I was watching, there's a director's commentary, and they were saying, you know, that was rotoscoped, and they were just like, we couldn't draw a realistic wobble on a basket, so we got a real wicker basket, we painted it white, we we covered it over in lines so we could sort of color it in, and we filmed it, and then oh, we drew wow. the mouse inside. I haven't, I haven't done the commentary. I should do that. I really ought to do that. I don't have it on Blu-ray, actually. I should probably get that. <laughs> There's a birdcage you get stuck in at one point as well. well like that, that's definitely been rotoscoped. Absolutely. Anything that wobbles, it seems, because um, there's also a scene where they're floating on a on, on some water and they just floated something on a tank of water to get the reference because, again, they couldn't... If they animated it, they were saying it would just be too smooth. You know, it has to look out of control. Well, that's, that's again, it, it sort of takes us back to what we were doing with BB-8 in Star Wars isn't in, in, in the fact that you can always tell sometimes his head just wobbles where I've pushed it over a bump and I've, I've kind of lost my footing a bit. And it's it's the imperfections of these things that make them perfect. So you can just spot when something's been faked. It gives the audience sort of things to relate to as well. Like, like oh yeah, like when I go on a, a boat or when I trip over a rock or something, you know, that happens to me. I can relate to BB-8 now. <laughs> yeah, <can't> <laughs> in <know>. that respect. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like out of necessity as well. And I think a lot of great filmmaking and art comes out of necessity. You know, for Don Bluth, it was a way to sort of do this in the quickest, most efficient possible way possible. And we all reap the reward because then we get to enjoy it in, in his film. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the, 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 the last act of this though as well, is it's a real roller coaster because it's it's got a political plot, an assassination, and a Robin Hood style sword fight in it in the last couple of minutes, where somebody winds up getting slashed across the chest. Mrs. Brisby gets a backhander off the villain, and then the villain winds up with a with a dagger in his back. And then the whole house sinks into the mud. It's just, the whole thing's <laughs> brutal. The kids are screaming. Um, it, it really, it really just goes off. It's proper sort of end of day stuff, isn't it? And yeah. I like how it builds to. A, it's a very like old school cinematic climax, I suppose. But um, it sort of really jumps up a notch by the time you get to to the sword fighting. It's fun, isn't it? You know, it's like old school heroic swashbuckling sort of stuff. But because it's in presented in what is supposed to be a kid's film and these are talking mice and talking rats doing it it just feels so bizarre to, to kind of watch it now yeah I, again it's, it's one of those oddities that you just think how did this ever get made but then you look at you look at some of the films that came out for children in the 80s and again brutal i mean i know i know um gremlins had like a 15 certificate when it came out in this country but it didn't in america you know this is it's a like terrifying film it, it, um but a lot of that, a lot of that stuff from that period, they just weren't messing about. Were they? It's just like, yeah, the kids will love this. <laughs> it's that um, sort of Steve, Steven Spielberg produced, Joe Dante directed kind of stuff, isn't it? Like um, very much like that, yeah. And I, I guess it's you know maybe that's what that's why I think I like those films quite a lot now because they've got a bit of teeth, they've got teeth, yes. you know, and yes. I, I love that you know, people are being sort of beaten up and there's blood and guts in these sort of kids' films from that time. Well, it's weird because I think we've gone, we've, we've kind of gone full circle because they really cleaned their act up 10 years ago and then you get stuff like Jumanji coming out now where people are getting punched across, you know, punched across buildings and, you know, eaten by crocodiles or whatever. And um, I think say it may very well have just tipped back the other way slightly because uh, that was always the stuff I went for as a kid, you know. I, I liked a lot of that. 
did you stay up to date with sort of Don Bluth's output during the 80s? Because um, I, I guess that was when he was kind of at the height of his animation powers. So I didn't um, really follow him that much. I knew who he was. That was, you know, and that, and that in itself, I suppose, for an animation director back then, I knew the man's name. You know, it's like, oh, he did that. What I like about his stuff, especially in the 80s and early 90s, is he's he's not just a director. He's credited as, you know, writer, mm-hmm. producer, production designer, storyboard artist, title designer. Like yeah. he's he's kind of really in there, you know, actually doing work as well as directing, um, you know, actually doing the animation work, which I, I guess it's, you know, why this this sort of the animation is just really stunning in all of his stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it, again, it's that thing if I suppose if your your bread and butter was and as an animator and you knew about that then you, you've got that down and then you know how you can write something to serve or, or animate something to serve the story and i suppose if you've got your fingers in all of those pies you can bring all of those threads together if you're a good storyteller and you know your animation stuff and 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 you know you obviously had a relationship with the uh with the voice performers as well and knew how to get a good performance out of somebody that you could then animate to. I think we've covered quite a lot about Secret of Nim, but when you went back to revisit it, was there anything that really stood out to you now uh, watching the film today? Just how dark it was. Um, and also actually because it had, at the centre of it, a mother f- trying to save her kids, like a real female action hero who would put her life on the line for her children. You know, against... All the odds. I mean, she faced down a tractor. She faces down a you know a giant cat, a giant owl. She walks into the rat's nest and is quite brutally chased out by one at one point. And she was just she was just brave and true to herself, and just was just trying to save her kids all the way through it. And that I thought that was, that was fantastic. So we've got The Secret of Nim in our under 90 minute film festival, joining a really prestigious animation corner. When we come to put on this great film festival, you know, we'll do actual in-person, remember those screenings of these films at the cinema. And, and we'd love to invite you, Brian, to be sort of the guest curator of the screening of The Secret of Nim. If you could choose any venue, any cinema, it doesn't have to be a cinema, you know, we could retrofit it uh, to project a movie, uh, choose a location for this film. Where would you, where would you like to show this uh, to an audience? Where would I show this as an audience? I mean, if I could remember exactly where, I think it was in Carshorton in Surrey, possibly, or maybe Wallington in Surrey, where I saw it originally. And it was one of those old flea pit ABCs, uh, failing that. I mean, somewhere, somewhere slightly dingy, you know, just, just one of those cinemas where the, where, where the bloom is slightly off it because everything's been done up and it's all beautiful now. But there was a certain charm about in Harlow, where I grew up years and years ago, there was an Odeon which was one, one whole auditorium, massive. They turned it into three. They took the top tier out, turned it into three. And now I, it, it's gone now, but there was then, it, then they made it into about five different screens and they were all the size of a shoebox. But somewhere, if those these cinemas do still exist, that is a little dingy. Okay, I, I, happy to happy to do this. We can we can despec a cinema somewhere and bring it back to eighty standards. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, if you if you were uh, you know had a chance to invite someone uh, involved in the film along for a, a Q and A afterwards or to introduce the movie to the audience, uh, who would you who would you like to hear more from? 
Oh, do they still have to be with us? Is that no? I think we've uh, we do have the the ability within this film festival to resurrect. Well, obviously you'd bring Don Bluth in because I'm sure he's got some fantastic stories, or Dom DeLuise, of course, who is always you know always wonderful. Um, Or actually, if you were going to do it now, I'd like to see Will Wheaton rock up because I would like to know what I'm not sure how old he was actually when he did this, but what his memories were of it, if he has any memories of it, because he's done so much stuff over the years. Um, yeah, Will 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 Wheaton and uh, and Shannon Doherty. Why not? Let's uh, let's, let's roll them both out. Let's get the kids back together and just say, you know, what do you remember about this movie? Cool. Okay. Well, there you go. That's uh, that's another fantastic addition to our film festival. Thank you so much, Brian, for bringing the secret of Nim uh, into into the fest. Our first Don Bluth production, but. I think most of his films are under 90 minutes, so we may, may be a director we revisit in the future. Oh, very good. Very good. I do suggest everyone goes out and watches it, though, because it is if you've never seen it, I've, there's nothing else like it. No, you do have to see it to believe it. And I say there is a Blu-ray at the moment. There's, um, there's a DVD, like a double-disc 25th anniversary edition, which was quite some time ago now. So uh, they're clearly marking the anniversary. So maybe we all get a 40th, the all-important 40th anniversary release. Uh, I think that would be I think that'd be really fun. Brian, what will what will people sort of see or, or hear you in next? The next thing I will be involved in is the second series of Spitting Image, the new revamp of Spitting Image, um, which will go out on BritBox. Uh, there are various video games I've had my vocal stylings in, which I can't talk about until they come out. And there's something else I've been involved in, which has got an NDA the size of Bournemouth slapped across <laughs> it. So I can't really talk about that either. Um, so yes, the next thing that I will be kind of publicly involved in his spitting image and you've got a really good twitter account as well brian where, where should people follow you on twitter uh they can find me at, at brian hezer h-e-double-z-a um it's mostly amusing rantings about star wars really and the occasional yes, comedy memes but uh, i don't really do anything there's nothing serious going on on my twitter feed well thank you so much brian and we'll see you at the secret of nim screening thank you very much Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. This episode was edited by Maddie Searle, with additional editing by Louise Owen and sound mixing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.